So we're trying to break this down in a different way. And so what we're doing is, is focusing on specific neighborhoods that we are really fond of. So it's like whenever you want to, do you want to work with somebody that you like? Obviously, you know, much more like that is a, is a big priority. And so what we do, we, we take that to the next level and say, we want to develop and own assets in neighborhoods that we think are really fun and are likable neighborhoods and have a lot of opportunity and potential. And so then we have selected specific neighborhoods and we'll do one-off small-scale projects, a 26-unit project, a 27-unit project, but they'll all be located within three or four blocks of each other. And so we've done that in four-ish specific neighborhoods within the city of St. Louis. And that allows us to operate those properties as a larger property. We don't have specific on-site property management teams for you know, the Tower Grove South assets for each one, but we really do because we're operating three or four properties as, as effectively one property. This is Country Club Conversations. I'm Raj Tut, founder and CEO of Storyboard Living. This show gives you actionable insights from the hard to reach top percentile in business and entrepreneurship. I think everyone deserves this type of access and I'm bringing it to you. Welcome to the club. Kyle. Raj. Thank you for making the time. Of course. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. You're the uh, principal and co-founder of AHM Group. You currently have $150 million worth of a, primarily apartments, a little bit of commercial, so mixed-use projects for the most part, and around $400 million in the pipeline. You're an up-and-coming, but yet still very established developer here in St. Louis uh, with a unique background, uh, one that wasn't a straight path to development. So right. um, if you can kind of just give me a brief overview of AHM Group, uh, I'd love to dig into how the idea came about after that. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. So um, we founded AHM Group in very early 2017, um, simply because there were three people, me and two other guys. Um, I lived in Los Angeles at the time and um, have always been a fan of the city of St. Louis and when we, I was living in LA, we were doing capital market advisory work. Um, and so my colleague there and I were like, man, we would really like to build something, develop something. But we had never done that before. And to do so in California, not so easy to do so in LA, even more challenging across the board, including you build a 26 unit property in LA, you know, that, that is probably, you know, $600,000 per unit in cost. And that's a lot of money to raise. Uh, none of, we're not independently wealthy. And so we just put together AHM, Anderson, Howerton, and Maltby, because that was the simplest way to go. That was the most meritocratic and uh, it was alphabetically ordered. And we just thought we were going to do one project and now we're where we are. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so you've come a long way from Marion, Illinois, which, with for the yeah. record, is a great town. I like Marion a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you grew up in Marion. Can you I give did. me some background on how you grew up, if you had any exposure to real estate or, or development? Yeah. Um, so from a very small town in southern Illinois, a couple hours outside of St. Louis, uh, I grew up in the country outside of Marion. My mom was a was a social worker at the VA hospital. My dad uh, was a state trooper. Um, and I had no experience really to even private enterprise. It was uh, being from a small town, rural town, uh, most, of the, most of my friends and, and their parents, they were employed by a hospital or a government 
or quasi-government entity like a school teacher or a nurse or a you know, a policeman or a fireman. And so um, when I was growing up, that's the path that I was surrounded by. And so that's what I always thought that I was going to do. And so I thought I was going to become a police officer. Um, and I really, uh, I, had a, I had a longtime girlfriend in high school who wanted to be a pharmacist. And so she went to St. Louis College of Pharmacy and I applied to St. Louis University. That was the only school I applied to. Otherwise I was gonna go to community college at John A. Logan Community College. And I got into SLU and thought, what the, what the heck? Like, let's do this. And that was my first time of really being surrounded by people who come from families that are in private business. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I, I feel like for a lot of folks that grow up in small towns, when they go to college or university, that's their first taste of like what's possible maybe outside of the town they grew up in. Yeah. So um, was it at SLU then that, you really got interested in real estate or were you still planning on entering law enforcement at that point as well? Yeah. So I was still, first of all, what a culture shock. So I feel like I've had culture shock multiple times in my life. One moving from the country uh, in Southern Illinois to St. Louis city uh, was really bizarre. And I got very homesick, especially the first year because I couldn't go deer hunting the days that I wanted to and things like that. I was really (laughs) jealous of my high school friends that were still doing that. Um, And then when I went to SLU, no, I wanted to go into federal law enforcement. We had a family friend who was in the Secret Service. And um, uh, ultimately, my senior year of college, I was a political science and philosophy uh, undergrad and focused on philosophy of God on that side. And then um, my um, second semester senior year, interned for the Secret Service in downtown St. Louis. And so that was really my path. And I was going to either, uh, I was accepted to officer candidate school in the Marine Corps. So I was either going to do that or uh, law enforcement. So I applied to city of St. Louis police department and then also Nashville Metro PD. And what do you know, the city of St. Louis got back to me first. And I started the police academy two weeks after graduating uh, from SLU. So how exactly does one go from the police academy to real estate development. Yeah. What were what, what happened? Well, after how much that? time do you have? <laughs> so, well, we have about an hour, I think. Yeah. So, so really, it depends on how much time you have. So, so this was a um, this was many steps, and it took me a long time. It wasn't until I was in business school uh, that I realized that real estate and real estate finance, particularly, was what I wanted to make my life's work about, or at least I thought at the time. So I. Um, I was a police officer in the city of St. Louis for a couple of years. Um, and then I followed my now wife uh, to the East Coast. So she moved to New York City and I moved to Connecticut and we were two hours away. That lasted about a year. Uh, whenever I moved, um, before we moved in together, she actually moved up to Connecticut and very quickly we then moved back to the city. Um, but when I moved to the East Coast, I very quickly realized I needed a job and then I had no true marketable skills other than, say, critical thinking skills because of the political science and, and philosophy undergrad degrees. And, and so I didn't know where to start. And fortunately, I obtained a job as a sales rep, a territory sales rep uh, for upstate New York, western Massachusetts, and the upper, the northern half of Connecticut for a medical device manufacturer. And... That was really interesting to be in New England, to be doing sales, no longer law enforcement, having a totally different perspective on how you interact with people. Although 
being a police officer, you learn how to interact with all different types of people at all different stages of life and, and typically in their worst, so it can be very challenging. And this allowed me to just not be afraid to call people, cold call people, talk to people. Uh, if they pushed back, I would push back harder and say, like, give me a shot, like, I'm not a bad person, that sort of thing. But what I did realize after two years of driving around New England is that being a sales rep was not something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I had no idea what I needed to do to change that. And then I realized I have to be a career changer. I got to go to business school. So my wife and I had just relocated back to uh, uh, Manhattan and I applied to a couple business schools um, and I took a real estate course, I think the, uh, the second semester that I was there and aced it and it felt very natural to me and I loved it. And ever since I have been focused solely on real estate in all aspects, um, particularly development, um, you know, investment development and the finance side. So right out of business school, is that when you relocated to LA and got into real estate finance? Yeah, that's right. So okay. the power of a network, um, this is something you don't really learn until it's almost too late, or at least I didn't, um, especially being from a small town, you know, I, I didn't realize how important it is to really rely on your network, to build your network, um, because that's how you can run into opportunities. And uh, my brother-in-law actually worked in LA at a firm called George Smith Partners, um, which is a boutique. They say real estate investment banking firm, but it's really a capital markets advisory firm. Uh, they don't have any of their own capital. Uh, you're, you're really just sourcing, structuring debt and equity uh, for other real estate developers. And so he was there and I visited him on a trip and uh, there was a team, a partner there that was looking to grow their team. And what do you know, we hit it off. But without my brother-in-law, Drew, uh, already being there, I never would, I would have really struggled, I think, to find a job because I didn't have the same pedigree that a lot of you know, finance guys have. Uh, I didn't come from the same areas and things like that. What year was this roughly? 2013. Okay. So essentially, you put yourself in a position to get lucky by going to business school and that connection with your brother-in-law kind yeah. of helped you get a little lucky to get the, the role. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's about working very hard and continuing to strive to achieve your goals. And, and eventually uh, there's a little bit of luck with working hard and that's how you make opportunity and you just got to take advantage of it. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes a yeah. lot of sense. And I agree. So 2013 would have been, I think, a good time to get into debt and equity structuring, mm -hmm. just in terms of where we were with the overall macro conditions and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people getting into multifamily development that may have been uh, projects that may have been paused, you know, a couple years earlier. Um, and I feel like 2013 is when capital started to really become readily available again. Uh, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so when you joined in 2013, did that particular group give you any background on what had happened five years earlier or, or were you familiar with kind of how difficult or challenging things were just before you joined? You know, I thought that I was familiar with how difficult things were just before I joined, you know, and going to business school 2011 through 13 or 12 through 13, um, it was yeah, yeah, we had a lot of adjunct professors that had real life experience during the GFC and they just told us how awful it was. Um, and then uh, being full, fully employed, uh, moving across the country to LA and um, working with this group, yeah, I didn't realize how easy I had it and I made it there about a year 
out of people actually, you know, lenders, equity investors opening up their their balance sheets again for new investments. Um, and so I missed that, but I got to hear a lot of very fresh, real horror stories about how something can just overnight effectively collapse. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so when you joined, I would imagine you weren't leading deals day one. No. Uh, what did your evolution look like there? And when did you really start to get into your comfort zone with structuring debt and equity? Yeah. So like I said, I think it, it came very naturally to me. The, the whole uh, idea, it, I can, I'm a very visual person and I'm fortunate enough to be passionate about something that I can visualize in my mind uh, fairly well and very quickly. Um, but no, I was a 27-year-old analyst that was working with, I was working with 22 to 24 year old guys and, you know, I was doing the same exact things and asking them questions and whatever, and we were all learning together. But what I, what I did was I worked a lot uh, and very hard. And I mean, I started just on data input and underwriting models, uh, putting in rent rolls and operating statements and things like that. And then learning how all of that worked together, then ultimately building underwriting models and putting together debt and equity requests and then eventually, once I started uh, actually talking to the capital providers, both debt and equity, getting much more comfortable with that, answering really tough questions, and then a competitive, if you're really good at being a debt and equity broker, capital broker, you have got to focus on getting ahead of any sort of perceived and real concerns from the capital provider. And that is what I focused on, and I, I learned that pretty quickly. And so... Um, no, I just grinded it out, really, is to, to answer your question. And that's how eventually, two years in, I started um, sourcing deals directly and placing them. And did it look the same way, whether it was debt or equity, when you say getting in front of potential challenges or questions? Similar, but different in that debt, the difference between debt and equity, um, debt does not care about upside. They focus solely on downside protection. A lender solely wants to get repaid, almost always, there are exceptions to every rule, solely wants to be repaid with a, a, and int earn interest on top of that. And that's the return and it's capped. Equity cares about the upside and they, they too want to mitigate downside, but they really are focused on the upside as well uh, and balancing the risk and reward. Um, so the, I thought that I was answering really tough questions when I was working with very smart lenders. And then I was schooled even more. I went to basically graduate school of tough questions whenever you start talking to equity investors, institutional equity investors that have seen a lot over a 30-year career. That was very tough, yeah. This might sound like an odd question, but did your law enforcement background help you at all when you were underwriting uh, deals at that time or figuring out what, what may be, I don't want to say true or not true, but what may be accurate or not. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think that it did. I think it helps a lot more than what one would think. Um, and I actually think that having a public service career for a short period of time for anybody is is very advantageous and uh, will teach you a lot about the world and the way that human beings work and the human mind works. Um, but yeah, so we would be able to, I think, quicker. Uh, we didn't take... I. It taught me to not take everything at face value. So if your client says, oh, but we're doing X, Y, and Z, it's like, well, this doesn't really smell right. And so let's make sure that, because also as a debt and equity broker, effectively, capital market advisory company, like you have to maintain credibility. You have two clients. You have, the, you have the client that is actually engaging you to go out and source debt and equity, and then you have the capital provider who is your other client. If you burn either of those bridges through lack of credibility, you're done. 
And it's very hard to get that credibility back. So yeah, I think you're totally right. It also taught attention to detail. So it prevented me from embarrassing myself and saying, hey, I think that we can get a $17 million loan for you at this pricing. And then it turns out it's a $14 million loan at this pricing because of a mistake, a double counting on, on, a, on an income item or missing an expense item, things like that. So really focused on not making mistakes, being detail-oriented, and then not taking, asking a lot of questions, not taking things at face value. That's a great point. And I'm sure a lot of those skills translate to real estate development as well. Oh, for when sure. When you were in the finance world, uh, were you thinking real estate development that entire time in terms of that's what you'd ultimately like to do? Or did something uh, spark that idea in you? It did. Yeah. So I, in business school, um, I actually went to my mom and said, hey, mom, I have this really wonderful idea. I'm an only child, so I could get away with some things that other people may not be able to get away with. Uh, I said, I have this really wonderful idea, and it means that we're going to buy uh, the worst house on a good block, and it needs a lot of work, and we're going to put in sweat equity. But in order to do this, we need to take out a home equity line of credit on your house. And she believed in me, and we did it. And you know, it wasn't a lot of money. It was $35,000 in total, um, which... I don't want to diminish. It's a lot of money, but you know, in the world of commercial real estate, it's not that much money. And um, and then we were off to the races. So I knew I did that while while I was in business school. I knew that that's ultimately where I wanted to be. I wanted to be on the sponsorship side, but I didn't know exactly how to get there. And then through um, the the work at George Smith Partners, um, I realized that a lot of the people that I was working with, they ultimately wanted to be on the sponsorship side, and they too were working through how do they do that. Um, but I think a differentiator is having a risk tolerance and the ability to just grind it out day after day and work 10 to 12 hours at your day job and then open up a new set of books and start working on your own development deal or sourcing your own acquisition value add or, or any type, core asset, et cetera. So you formed AHM in 2017. Uh, were you working on the idea of what eventually became AHM a couple of years prior to that, or or did you kind of jump right into it? Yeah, um, we fell into it. So you know, 2015, 16, Mikey, my colleague at GSP, who's now the M and AHM, he and I, you know, would would sit there and daydream during the day and nighttime, working in our cube, uh, in our pod about how we're going to create a development company and how cool we thought that was. And then whenever we found Rob Maltby, the, the M, in 2017 informed AHM, we really just thought that we were going to, uh, you know, maybe I mentioned this previously, but I th- we thought we were going to do one project and that was it. And then more opportunities presented themselves. And that's the thing that I really like about the city of St. Louis is how many opportunities there are and you can affect a material change for the, for the better. Um, but, after the success of our first project that delivered in February of 2019, we realized like we really have something here. And so that's when we started to think much longer term about what's next for us. Are we going to stay at GSP? Are we going to leave? So in 2020, Mikey and I left the partners team that we had been working on. We stayed at GSP, but we really doubled down with Rob on the HM side, acquired a couple more assets. Um, and then in 2022, we joined uh, forces with a fourth, now a fourth partner, Brian Pratt. And that's when we really created what AHM is today. And that's really a fully integrated real estate development, investment, advisory shop. Um, we have an affiliated property management company, affiliated construction management company, and then a, uh, a third-party brokerage and development consultancy. That's the Ballast Commercial Real Estate. So it, it, we were daydreaming about it for a long time. And then finally, during COVID, it just kind of clicked. 
That's a great story. I'd love to kind of jump into how some of these organizations are structured. I think that could be really helpful. But before we do that, one of your partners has experience with a larger development company in St. Louis, correct? That's right. So did that help with the way you think about projects now and just the way you're structuring the company going forward? You know, um, no, but they, they were also a client of mine on the capital market side of things. And so we could see a little bit uh, inside baseball. And that was really fun. We structured the company in the way that we did because of the types of projects that we were doing and making sure that they were actually economically viable. And so, you know, if you're, we do a lot of neighborhood infill projects that are not huge. They're not a million dollar projects and they're not $20 million projects. They're typically in the five to $12 million range. You don't have a lot of efficiencies. You're working with a lot of smaller companies, smaller GCs, smaller property management teams, and you can't afford the the really great larger uh, third party providers, whether it's the property management side or or the con- the construction management side, because the the fee percentages are too large. So it was out of necessity that we structured the company in the way that we did. It was so that we could have greater control, greater insight over decision making greater transparency, um, and we reduced the fee load through that. So we didn't create these companies to drive additional revenue to ourselves. They were created to create a much more cost-efficient structure, um, and that's the reason that we vertically integrated. And on the property management side, we know how important that is, that experience is, as you know, uh, for the tenant. We want to have really high retention. We want to get a lot of referrals. And the the way that we thought that we could make that happen was by having full control over that experience. We're vertically integrated, like you said, for for the same reason. I think having full control over the resident experience and ultimately a multi-million dollar investment in the property is extremely important. Uh, Another piece as well is, for us at least, just like some of your projects, maybe all of your projects, we can't find a third party that would be able to effectively operate our communities the way we do because yeah. they're they're between 40 to 120 units. So most of our communities don't have on-site team members. Uh, and our maintenance team kind of uh, operates like a home services company for the most part. You know, they hit our, our main office and uh, our warehouse in the morning, and then they hit each community and knock out the tasks as they need to. How's your setup on, you know, the leasing maintenance side? And also with each company, uh, do you have some synergy in terms of team members or is it all, uh, it, are they all their own separate silo? Yeah, so I'll start with the easy question first, which is the, the they're all siloed, um, except for the partners. So, and, and Heather, so I talked about Heather before. So she really is helpful on the property management side, the, the capital markets advisory development consultancy, uh, and then the investment management through AHM Group. Um, but otherwise, uh, other than Heather and the partners, we are, are we try to be siloed um, to create experts in their field. Um, that is really the goal. Do you have on-site team members at each community or right. property, or how are you kind of running it? So we're trying to break this down in a different way. And so what we're doing is is focusing on specific neighborhoods that we are really fond of. So it's like whenever you want to, do you want to work with somebody that you like? Obviously, you know, much more. Like that is a, is a big priority. And so what we do, we we take that to the next level and say, we want to 
develop and own assets in neighborhoods that we think are really fun and are likable neighborhoods and have a lot of opportunity and potential. And so then we have selected specific neighborhoods and we'll do one-off small-scale projects, a 26-unit project, a 27-unit project, but they'll all be located within three or four blocks of each other. And so we've done that in four-ish specific neighborhoods within the city of St. Louis, and that allows us to operate those properties as a larger property. We don't have specific on-site property management teams for the Tower Grove South assets for each one, but we really do because we're operating three or four properties as as effectively one property. Got it. That makes sense. So you're more focused on geography than property when it comes to your teams. Yes, that's right. Okay. And then how close does an asset need to be in order for it to be uh, lumped in with the others? Like, can it be a five-minute drive or do you want within a 10-minute walk? Or what's your preference there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that our preference is that it's within f- five to 10 blocks of each other. Got um, it. That's really the way. And everything that we're doing is 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 urban. And so it's less about the drive time and more about the physical you know, closeness. As far as branding goes, like, let's say you mentioned uh, Tower Grove South. Yeah. Um, Will all four assets there have similar branding so that folks know that these are all AHM properties or, or do you try to keep them separate? Yeah, we, we don't actively try to keep them separate, um, but they don't, they all have their own uh, personalities, if you will, you know, and, and we let each of the projects take their own personalities to the extent that that's possible. So no, we don't kind of co-brand assets, um, but a tenant will know that we own those the multiple properties, typically because we'll say, oh, you have this specific unit type that you want to look at in this specific budget. Well, we have three different units across three different properties that are available, and we have no preference. Like, we want to show you all of them. And so they'll very quickly realize, like, oh, they they do, hopefully, they do a good job of, of kind of the relationship management side of, of, of the property management, um, and they own all of these properties. And so these guys are around every day. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, I One thing that I think uh, for folks like myself that are not operating in, in an urban environment, uh, one thing to keep in mind is your clientele there is going to look different than your suburban clientele. Yeah. And they may appreciate not having the co-branding. So having that boutique or unique experience at each property. So yeah. I, it sounds like that really goes into your thought process with, the, with each development. That's right. Yeah. You know, for, you know, for example, MoFo is the first project that we built in Terra Grove South. That was a ground up development on an old car wash. Uh, and then a block south of that is a project called YO. Uh, and we actually, we kept an existing two and a half story structure and wrapped a new four story structure around that. So YO and MoFo, you know, they're kind of similar, but if you look at the branding design packages, like they're completely different. Got it. Yep. Uh, so on that topic of MoFo, which <laughs> I think is a is a great name. Yeah, for uh, most and- people. <laughs> We've only had one complaint. It was an octogenarian who was unhappy and thought that we were insulting. Yeah. But oh, well, uh, it works. To be fair, it stands for Morganford Urban Residences. That's right. So <laughs> it's a contraction of Morganford. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so on that deal, that was the first successful deal that HM did where you really felt like you need to keep uh, repeating that, uh, yeah. the, what you what you have going on. Is that correct? Was that the first deal? Yes, that's okay. correct. So with that deal, can you kind of give us some background on site selection, underwriting due diligence, how that came together for, for MoFo? 
Yes. So there's a bar across the street called Amsterdam Tavern. And um, I hope that a lot of people that, that watch this or listen to this have gone to Amsterdam Tavern. It's a great place. Um, but so uh, Rob Maltby and I, uh, the m and so we were having a beer talking about, daydreaming about how we'd like to be sponsors one day. And we both look across, after maybe two or three beers, we look across the street and see uh, a dilapidated car wash. And it's about 17,500 square feet of land. Once we looked it up on the city's website and we're like, that's the one. Rob's like, it's not for sale. I'm like, I don't really care. So we we did the research. We started making phone calls to the owners. We sent them letters. And eventually they called back and said, yeah, we would love to entertain an offer. And um, nothing had been, we have the benefit there of being in a uh, mature, stable neighborhood. However, we were the first mover in terms of uh, ground up development and adding anything that was built in the effectively after 1950. Um, so we were the first and only project of, that was new construction. Um, and so there were, they didn't, the, the sellers weren't real estate people in the first place. They had kind of fallen into the property. And then secondly, they didn't really know the values and they cared more about offloading it. They saw it as a problem rather than a real asset. And so one man's trash is another man's treasure and, and the rest is history. So then we had a really good cost basis is the point of that. Um, so we had a great cost basis, but we had zero direct rent comps. And so we said, this cost basis is wonderful. 2017, as it turns out, was a really great time to build ground up construction. We didn't have, it was pre-COVID. It was still coming out of the GFC. Uh, there was still a little bit of slack in the, in the labor market, materials markets. So we had a good cost basis on the, on the vertical hard costs. Um, but again, we had no idea what our operating income and expenses were going to look like. And so we just said, hey, we think in a good day, we're going to be able to get this rent rate. You know, it's 100%. Let's just back it down to 80%. And if the return on cost still works, then let's go for it. And the return on cost still worked. And we went for it. And what do you know? Uh, year over year, uh, compound annual growth rate, we're probably looking at like seven-ish percent of rent growth uh, for that specific property. Not our whole portfolio isn't like that, but that specific property. And um, I think it just, you know, it says a lot about picking a neighborhood that you want to be in and that other people want to be in and finding those uh, opportunities that other people don't see. So when you found that opportunity, um, how did the structuring look like for the debt? And also, you know, when you were getting the quotes on the construction, what did that process look like since you guys were not new to the business, but new to the business as entrepreneurs? Yeah. Oh, of course. So it's, it's scary. When, when, you're, when, when I'm brokering debt or equity for a third-party client, it's very easy to talk so positively about them, paint them in the most optimistic light. But I'm a pretty reserved person. And so whenever you're talking about yourself, it can be, a, for me, it's really challenging. So when we started packaging up our debt requests and sending it around to people, we were getting a lot of notes because they're like, well, two of you live in LA and only one of you is here and none of the three of you have ever done anything like this. Sure, this is a great underwriting package and it's a beautiful and you know well thought out, laid out, uh, lots of details, succinct uh, debt request, but that's not enough. So eventually, we were able to convince a lender. I won't say which one, but they were happy that they did the deal because we paid them off later. Um, uh, that we actually did know what we were doing and that this was a great risk to take. And it was for the improvement of, of the city and of the specific neighborhood. Um, so where I'm going with this, too, is we had 80% loan-to-cost debt. And it was at 4.5% fixed rate debt. The interest rate was good. It was 25-year AM after the first two years uh, of the construction period. Um, 
but it was 80% loan to cost. And then whenever we talked, that went against a lot of, say, the coastal investors who said, I just lived through a horrible experience in 2008 through 10, and you want to have as much equity in the deal as possible. Well, in a neighborhood scale infill project, you don't really run the same risk that you do if you're working with a money center bank who can like just turn off the funding immediately. So we felt like we mitigated a lot of structural risks on the debt side, um, and we were okay with the leverage point being 80% because we were focused on cash flow. So one of the key reasons that we invest in, in St. Louis is because the, the cap rate is much higher in, in the Midwest in general as it is uh, in the top five gateway cities or the coast in general. Um, and so you, could, you can have a, a 60% loan-to-cost loan on an asset in LA, but it's at a 115 DSCR. But you could have an 85% loan-to-cost loan in St. Louis City, and it's at a 140 DSCR, using the same interest rate and structure as the loan. So what we care about is actual cash flow less than um, loan-to-cost metrics. So that's why we structured it um, 80% loan-to-cost we also needed to structure it that way because it was a six and a half million dollar project, not a huge project, but again, it's our first one. We're in our late twenties, um, early thirties, I guess, actually to date myself, but yeah. And, and, um, we passed the hatch friends and family saying, Hey, we need to raise some money. And the, if we, every hundred thousand dollars that we needed to raise was a hundred thousand dollars that we thought we weren't going to be able to raise and that we didn't have a project. And so we needed to lever up as much as possible our first deal. And that's what we did. And then, the rest is common equity, um, you know, traditional co-investment on the GP side, the HM group side. And then um, once again, only child. And I went to my mom and said, hey, uh, here you have a retirement account. Like you can actually invest in this deal. And so she did. Um, and she said, if you mess this up, you're only screwing yourself over. And uh, fortunately, we have uh, returned all of that equity plus some. But that's how we structured it. Got it. Uh, there's a couple of things there that I'd, yeah. I'd like to touch on. So. Earlier on in our conversation, you mentioned 35000 not being a lot of money and then clarified that in the world of commercial real estate, it's not right. a lot of money. I would imagine you spent more than 35000 just on reports on that deal. Uh, oh, yeah. Just, you know, appraisal, phase one, things of that uh, nature. Um, and then the other piece, you mentioned the debt being fixed rate. So was it yes. uh, was it fixed during the construction period as well? Yes. So that's is another- Is that typical in your it world? It is for us. Got so it. that's another reason that we very much enjoy these neighborhood scale projects because then you're working with a we we almost always work with a community sized bank. They're wonderful to work with. They actually work with you if there are issues. Almost always they do. And they also will structure really mutually beneficial loan debt structures. And so we, every instance that we possibly can, we take out fixed rate financing. If you're going to lever up to 80%. Uh, at a four and a half percent starting rate, you've got, maybe you have a 140 DSCR, but if that if you have a floating rate loan, then you find yourself in the world that we have found ourselves in in the past 18 months, where Prime went from three and a quarter to eight and a half percent in basically what 14, 15 months. Uh, that's a problem because um, your DSCR is going to go way down. I don't care how much cash equity you have in the deal; you're potentially going to be funding out of pocket the debt service shortfall. So. Fixed rate financing is something that we almost always use, um, and there are only a couple instances that we would not. Got it. Um, another similarity there, we always use fixed rate debt. Yeah. Uh, we primarily work with community banks uh, going into a deal, and then we'll refinance with perm debt, Fannie, Freddie, HUD, uh, 
sometimes CMBS, but usually Fannie, Freddie, or HUD. Yeah. Um, and the one development that we've done was kind of adding townhouses onto an existing community of ours. And uh, for that, we had fixed rate debt, but I just, I didn't think it'd be typical for a developer because, you know, at least from my perspective, you always hear of developers using floating rate debt during the construction period. So would you say that's something that is relatively unique to you guys or? That's a hard question to answer, but maybe, um, probably, um, you know, Mikey and I have $5 billion worth of experience in terms of structuring debt and equity over a 10 year period. And so we have, learned both the good and bad things um, that we see that our clients have, have the, the decisions that they've made, um, and we have tried to pick up on both of those good and bad things. And I think that this is really probably starting to drive home the reason why we love you know, five to $15 million projects. Uh, if you have a $30 million construction loan, there's no way that your lender, you're not gonna be able to work with a community bank, and there is almost no way to have a fixed rate construction loan with anyone, any lender other than a regional or community bank. And so this is why we really like these, this scale of projects, because you can just re repeat this over and over again. Uh, and then take out financing with Fannie, Freddie, HUD. We agree with that. Um, and hopefully it's cash out. Right. Yep. Uh, that 5 to 15 space, whether it's acquisitions or development, I feel like when you're in the Midwest, particularly St. Louis, or at least where we have experience, yeah. that's such a great space to play because, again, too large for individuals, kind of too small for institutions or some of the larger players. When you're in L.A., that 5 to 15 space, I'm sure, just like Toronto, is extremely competitive, mm -hmm. extremely crowded. And then, uh, just like you mentioned, it doesn't matter whether you know, you're know 60% LTV, your debt coverage is probably pretty constrained. And just due to that competition, I personally feel like there's more risk in the markets where people will say there's less risk. Totally agree with you. And illiquid, a period of illiquidity like we've seen in the past 12 to 18 months, I don't know that there's that much difference in the liquidity of the markets between a Toronto or a St. Louis today. Right. And if they're, and we're seeing a ton of, of coastal institutional investors come into St. Louis, speaking to the St. Louis experience, simply because the cap rates are wider still than the coasts. And they have recently been very much burned by a three and a quarter cap, you know, 40 unit LA uh, multifamily deal that they bought. Uh, and now all of a sudden you know, their floating rate loan is, you know, seven and a half, eight and a half percent and they're upside down. So yeah, they're, that's why we like where we are and the space that we're in. And I agree with you. However, on the, on the converse side of that, we get questions of, well, who's your ultimate buyer? So you're going to build this thing and, okay, you're going to hold on to it forever. That's what you're telling us. But what happens if you don't hold on to it forever? What, who's going to buy a $10 million property? Uh, and so that's the answer. That's the question that we find ourselves needing to answer the most with both debt and equity. So I'm sure you have an answer. My answer would be, you package it by geography and you sell to a larger player. That's right. I mean, we totally agree with that. And that's another reason why we like to co-locate our projects in specific neighborhoods, because all of a sudden you've got three 30-unit projects in a two-block radius. Well, you've really got a portfolio, you know, a 90-unit portfolio that looks a lot more attractive to a, a quasi-institutional or institutional player. 
And at that point, that portfolio would be similar in age as well, correct? So it's attracting the same type of buyer? For sure. You know, it's it's all sprinklered. It's they've all they all the properties have elevators. It has ever has a newer roof, a TPO roof. You know, it's it it checks all of the boxes that you need to check. Got it. Just going back to Mofo now. Yeah. Uh, once you got the debt and equity lined up on that particular deal. How were you getting quotes from GCs or, or some of the subs if you were acting as the GC? And then were there any design elements that you were paying attention to then that maybe you've changed now? Like, let's say you mentioned a TPO roof. Maybe on MoFo you did a TPO roof and on your newer developments you're doing something else because you think it'll last longer. Do you have any examples like that as well? So I think the the things that we did right at MoFo were uh, making sure that each of the units had a lot of natural light. And so although this is a you know a, a type four construction, type five construction uh, project, we have floor to ceiling windows in every room. It's just not that it's a it's not a curtain wall, but we we have a lot of natural light. We did that the right way. What we did the wrong way was we sized the units to be too large. So. We could have probably added a couple extra units. The average one-bedroom square footage at MoFo is 800 square feet. It's really big. Anybody you talk to, so uh, guys in our industry will say, "Hey, what's the dollar? What's the rent dollar per square foot?" And I'm like, "Well, it's like a dollar seventy-two. And they're like, "Oh, that's horrible." And I'm like, "Yeah, but it's a 800 square foot unit. It's still 1550 a month, whatever." And they're like, "Oh, that's a really good, you know, whole dollar absolute rent." Yeah, it is, and it's a value add. But that's something that we would change in the future. We we probably would not do that again. Um, the other thing that we wouldn't do is we would make sure that every unit has a traditional washer dryer. So in Mofo, to as a VE design change, we um, swapped out the washer dryers from a traditional washer dryer uh, to a condensing dryer, and so it's an all-in-one unit. It's fine. It works fine. Um, I used this for a period of years when we lived in LA, um, but it takes an education to those tenants. And in the Midwest in particular, you don't have a lot of tenants that have experience with all-in-one washer condensing dryer that might take six hours to do a single load of laundry. It's convenient for some people and it's super annoying for others. Um, And so we would spend the money to make sure that we have even though it's not cheap to have the proper ventilation uh, and the fans that are required per code to have a traditional washer dryer. That makes a lot of sense. It's, that's one of the small touches that I think you don't really learn unless you've gone through that experience yeah. yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and it helps that you're vertically integrated, so you're getting that feedback right. consistently. It's another reason why we like to be vertically integrated. I mean, you know, if you want to build something or you want to buy something, then you can go to the property management team or you're hearing these updates firsthand oh, well, this is the feedback from you know, this market. Yeah, and, and if you're targeting the same market, then you can just extrapolate that to the next project and try to make it better. Did MoFo have any amenities or shared uh, common space? Yeah, so um, we have a small gym. We have a bike storage room, the same size as the gym. It's got about 40 bikes um, that can be stored there. And I've heard... Tower Grove South, Tower Grove Park area, Shaw, called uh, Little Amsterdam. And like, I actually think there might be some truth to that. All 40 bike racks are taken by our tenants, and it's a 26-unit building. Wow. And so it's really fascinating to see. Um, and it's really fun to see, and we would like to see more of that. Um, otherwise, that's it in terms of common areas. We have, store, we have eight storage lockers for a 26-unit building. All of those are occupied. Um, at, at, you know, that's another way to monetize the square footage of the building and add an amenity uh, 
to your property too. But otherwise, it's really a limited amenity building, just a gym, dog wash station, bike racks, and storage lockers. I feel like the core amenities are what are going to have staying power, like the ones you mentioned. And some of the fancier or funner amenities, they may attract people when a building's new, but I'm not entirely sold on their staying power. Yeah. And I think somewhere down the road, you're going to have to spend money to switch them out with other amenity spaces. So uh, I, I like that approach there. And I'm assuming that's the approach you kept at Future Developments as well? Yeah, the, the only addition, we've made two additions at a few properties that are ground up and also value add, kind of adaptive reuse. Um, rooftops, where we can. We, we decided not to pursue a rooftop at MoFo um, for another uh, VE decision. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but I wish that we could have a rooftop. So at every project that we can make sense of a rooftop, that's what we add. Um, and then the second one are uh, package rooms. So we try to also add a dedicated package, secure, if we can, package storage locker. With your communities being in, in the city, is package theft an issue at all? We have not run into that issue. Okay, and that's due to just the location and the security around some of your uh, package rooms? Yeah, we focus really heavily on on access controls to the building and then you know security cameras, things like that. But um, yeah, all of the buildings are 100% secure. And so as long as your delivery driver it follows through with placing the packages inside the building, we typically don't have any issues, especially when there's a camera that's looking straight at where the packages are, are stored. It, the only issues that we have are kind of the laziness of some of the delivery drivers. Sorry if anybody is listening or watching to this, but but um, I just wish that you guys would put it inside the building. When I said that, I did not mean to imply that package theft only happens in the city or anything oh, like yeah, that. No. So uh, I just want to make that clear because I, I personally think the city's great and I think there's a lot of potential. I'm sure that's why you're investing yeah. in the city. What do you think St. Louis looks like 10 years from now, 15 years from now, particularly the neighborhoods you're in? Or what's your hope? Yeah, our hope is that there's a lot more infill that goes in on some of the vacant or underutilized lots. Some of the neighborhoods that we're working in, all of the neighborhoods in the city of St. Louis are historic to some degree. Um, but those that we're really excited about are particularly historic. So it can be challenging to add infill projects. Um, we would like to see a l more young families. That's what we would like to see. However, everything that we are building and everything that we've advised on in terms of capital are very heavily one bedroom focused. And we've seen that two bed, two bath units are not, you don't get the same rent per square foot or return on cost really um, for adding that second bedroom. They're the slowest to lease up. Um, but I hope that that changes. And I think that we need to start focusing on adding more three bedroom units to the city, especially if we want to see the young families come back in. Um, but that I think, you know, I, we talk to a lot of people. We talk to a lot of people outside of the city that that or outside of the Midwest that come and visit and see some of the projects. And there, everyone has been very impressed with what's going on in the region as a whole. Uh, nobody has been disappointed. Um, but that's the one thing that we would like to add is new families. You know, I've heard um, in other cities that are perhaps a little more expensive or, or harder to live in due to the cost of living. Um, that three-bedroom, two-bedroom units are heavily in demand. Folks wish they built more of them. Yeah. Now it's extremely hard to build. So uh, I think that's a great point that St. Louis, 
and you know, this is all private development, so it's hard to say what someone should or shouldn't do. But if we were to start building those now, it would be a great way to kind of plan for the type of future demand or yeah. or the the you know population growth we hope to see. So, do you think families move into the city once maybe schools are a little more attractive, or what do you think it'll take, or maybe? more jobs or what do you think it'll take for families to want to move to the city aside from those three and two bedroom apartments? Yeah, I think that schools are the number one factor. I mean, that's what you hear. Um, everybody that I have worked with for or have worked for us, you know, that they tend to move as soon as their children become, you know, school age and they move out of the city. They might move to U City or Clayton or Maplewood. Richmond Heights. Um, so they try to stay as close to kind of the action as possible, but I think it's really scary. And it might even be a perception that's a misperception and that the city schools really aren't, that the school district really isn't bad. But perception is reality and that's the unfortunate truth. And so we need to do what we can to change that perception and the reality if the reality is true. I agree. I think if it is perception no one wants to be the one to take that gamble and say, hey, totally. okay, maybe it's maybe that's not the reality. It's so, your kid. Right, right. You know? uh, and then it's like, well, I'm going to have to send my child to private school. And, well, I could just buy a, a, the same caliber of home that I have in the city. But in Clayton, it's going to be more expensive. But I'm not spending $20,000 a year per kid to, to, for private school. Yeah, so the school district is absolutely what needs to change. The... Yeah, you know, the 1% earnings tax, we have heard recently from a few people that are trying to add substantial employees to the region uh, that they will not locate to the city of St. Louis due to the earnings tax. They will instead go to Olivet or Clayton or Chesterfield. Um, that's a little bit of a bummer. But what I would like to say is there are a ton of employees and employers in the city of St. Louis. We have an incredibly diversified workforce. It's a really impressive workforce, especially for the size of the city that or the MSA that we are. You know, we're right on the cusp of 20. I think we're now 21st largest MSA. Uh, I would like to get back to the 20th, but that's for another discussion. Um, but when you talk to out-of-towners that are bringing large offices in, they are very impressed with the caliber of the workforce and how diverse it is. They say, like, you know, another city, St. Louis is an anomaly in the United States in terms of the size of the MSA and, and the workforce. That's great to hear, and I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. I've never heard that before, although I don't find that hard to believe at yeah. all. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, just going back to AHM, because mm -hmm. uh, like you said, this could be a whole other discussion yeah. in terms of what we'd like to see or, or not see uh, in the region. Uh, with AHM, after MoFo, can you give us just like a very – high level overview of the next few projects and how that became what it is today, the 150 million portfolio? Yeah. So we were really focused on ground up development, starting with MoFo. So we did MoFo and then we bought another commercial building that was more of a value add on Morgan Ford. Um, three, uh, well, Black Sheep is there now. It used to be Three Monkeys. Um, it's really great. Um, Mary and Zach do a wonderful job, and I hope that people go. Uh, and then ground up development called YO. Um, and then we started acquiring a few value-add projects rather than focusing on ground up. We, we had acquired a few uh, plots of land, and, and then 2020 hit, and it was it was scary for lots of reasons. And then it became a reality that the labor and materials, labor workforce shortage, material shortage, supply chain issues, uh, it was really 
it wasn't financially viable to go ground up at that time. Um, and now we're dealing with interest rates. So what we have have converted to is a value add acquisition reposition strategy, um, especially within the last 12 months with um, you know, the unfortunate state of sellers needing to create liquidity. And they're sellers because they need to generate liquidity for other projects or, or what they're doing, solve other problems. And so we have been a bit of a beneficiary from that. Uh, and I, it pains me to even say that because you don't want any of this to happen, um, but it's true. And we have our own challenges, so don't get me wrong. So, but we have really been focused on acquiring value-add projects for the last 24 months, and we've acquired another six or so properties, about 400 apartment units, and we have invested heavily into those in terms of upgrades. Nothing that we've acquired has just been, oh, this is nice, and we're going to make a couple tweaks, and we're going to improve the operations. It's, we're going to make a lot of tweaks and we're going to do a lot of construction work and then we're going to improve the operations too. Um, so that really has been the primary driver of the growth of the portfolio. And then the future growth of the portfolio is very likely focused on the ground-up development and we hope that, that everything in, in life and in the world is a cycle and so we hope that we're kind of cycling back into a favorable development period of time. Downtown West is our, is our baby at the moment. Uh, we own or control 14 acres there. Um, we're in contract to acquire another 140 units and 34,000 square feet of commercial space. These are all mixed-use projects. They're neighborhood-scale projects. We'll operate them as one portfolio, get those efficiencies. And then everything else there is, is kind of ground-up uh, development. We've, that's where 75% of our, our development pipeline is located. It's just one block north of the new MLS stadium, which was a godsend for the region and the city. The scope of work on your value-add projects, I'm sure, differs based on, you know, the acquisition and what's needed versus, you know, with new development, the scope is the entire thing. Right. Uh, so with value-add, how are you building out your construction team or is it your property management maintenance side that is taking care of those renovations? Yeah, so we we almost always split that out. So um, we've acquired two properties. Uh, one's a 32-unit property and the other one's a 36-unit property, uh, one in Soulard and one in the Gate District uh, that did not require a general contractor. So we did not utilize HM constructors for that. Um, you're looking at the project manager um, and, and then Rob, uh, my business partner, managed one of the other properties and we subcontracted all of that work out, but it was just, it, that was pretty light. Um, and so Typically, HM Constructors is running those projects, but we do silo the maintenance team to truly take care of, we're not trying to, we're trying to keep the maintenance team focused on units that are in service and creating the best tenant experience that we possibly can. And I think that what we have learned just in our short six, seven years of being in business as a, as a group is like, try not to expect everything from everyone. And like, we really need to slow things down sometimes and make sure that we can walk before we run and keep people focused on certain tasks rather than asking them to do everything. Because that's when we start to see cracks, even in ourselves. That makes sense. And, and I agree. I think, as you mentioned very earlier in the conversation, specialists are very yeah. important and letting people really thrive in their one area or one or two areas versus expecting them to wear multiple hats. So uh, I think it's the right approach. Uh, one thing we've thought about going forward, we're typically acquiring 90s or newer assets. Mm -hmm. So heavy value add isn't necessary and it's not really the strategy, although we've done it. Uh, but one thing we've thought about is maybe building um, crews in-house that can 
turn apartments yeah. and, and do full scope renovations. So that's why I was curious about that. But it sounds like you subbed most of the workout. Yeah, so so we did, but what I would but that's a really great point that you made. So our construction management company really has two sets of supers and project managers. One is for ground up development, because that's a unique, you know, beast of its own. And even more challenging, I think, is the value add acquisition when you have a heavy reposition because you buy a property you didn't realize that in 2007 the, the, the redeveloper put in European locks and doors. And guess what? Uh, that was uh, like the last of the lot and they're not available anymore. And all of a sudden you're having to solve these issues that nobody would ever think about. And so the ground up guys never have to really worry about that. They worry about other issues. But the value add heavy reposition properties, that takes a specialist of its own kind. They, to be an expert in, when we open this wall, we're gonna run into issues and they know how to solve them now. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of brain damage. Do you think one or the other are easier? They both have their challenges like you mentioned. Oh, man. It's all about the cycle that you're in, sure, I think. Sure. You know, I think, I think uh, 2017 was a great time to build ground-up development. I think right now in the last 24 months has been an awful time to build ground-up development. And if you're not one of the powerhouse uh, construction managers, general contractors, it's, um, if you're working with anyone other than that, uh, they can be the best of the best. But you know, the, with a labor shortage, it's really a challenge. And um, so you got to work with the big guys, in my opinion. Uh, the value add... It's uh, every time you acquire a building, you're acquiring unknowns. In a ground up, you you have much less of that. Once you actually get your footings foundations in the ground, you've you've de-risked the project a lot. That makes sense. And I would 100% agree with the value add part of that because for us, we're heavily focused on buying something that's never been renovated. Right. Because we don't want to deal with someone's, like you said, maybe 2007 renovation or whatever they might have done. We'd rather buy something that's been untouched. Yep. Whether it's newer and doesn't need it or if it does need it, we know we can go in and just do absolutely everything or it's a blank slate more or yeah. less. Um, with your current projects, 400 million in the pipeline, my understanding is that you've paused for now. Yeah. Can you give us just high level why and what it might take to push some of those through or to, or, or to really get started again? Yeah. So for the sake of round numbers, let's say we have about 10 ground up development projects. We have selected th three or so of those to continue moving forward with construction drawings and getting in a place where we can have an executable GMP within a month or so of when we want to go out to the, to the capital markets to, to raise the debt and equity. And those are the larger projects that are in downtown West. Um, and we, that is the way that we have tried to continue. We've, we've really selected those projects that we think make the most sense that would be able to break ground first. And so we're very focused on investing our capital into those three projects to ensure that when the time is right, we can press go within hopefully 30 days. I don't think anything's as easy as what I, what I hope it is. So, you know, within a couple months, we'll actually be able to get a shovel in the ground and time it. We hope to time it pretty well. Um, and so the rest of those projects, we unfortunately are just pissed about, but we have to put them on hold. Makes sense. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Do you have any one deal in particular that you're very excited about or hoping will will come to fruition? We have a mass timber high rise that's proposed in downtown West. It fits the the ESG movement. Um, it would, 
you know, 100 and one Cardinal Way are really the only direct competitors to this. Uh, I hope I don't offend anybody, but um, you know, that there's not enough high rise product in the St. Louis MSA for all of the St. Louis, in my opinion, is a boomerang city and it should be, and every city should be also in my opinion, that the young people leave for education. They leave to get a couple years of experience. They start to create a family and they come back. Well, whenever they're coming back, they typically are, from my experience, they're typically spending 12, 24 months renting. And a lot of people are coming from very high cost of living cities and they expect the experiences that those high costs of living cities have. And there just aren't enough of those apartment units uh, available. And so we're really excited about hopefully having a 315-foot mass timber high-rise. Um, I don't know when we'll be able to break ground on that, but hopefully it's in the next you know, 12 to 18 months. We'll see. Uh, and then the more realistic project to break ground that's equally as exciting um, is really two phases of one project, uh, Locust and 22nd Street, and then the 2100 block of Washington. It's about 200 apartment units in total and about 15,000 square feet of commercial space. And that will do a lot to activate the downtown West neighborhood. Uh, and we hope to turn that, help turn that into a live, work, play city uh, or neighborhood with everything else that, that surrounds it. That's a demand driver. Those sound like awesome projects. And I yeah. hope they come to fruition. Me I would too. also love a tour when, when they do come Let's to do fruition. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, the, the Mass Timber deal, I feel like you guys put that out at some point because I read about it in the news. I yeah. could be wrong. What we try to do is stay out of the news for any and all reasons. But you know what? Everything is a public record in, the, in our world. And so whenever we're, we're submitting for zoning-only plans or incentives or uh, variances, then business journalists do a really great job of picking these things up, as they should. And, um, you know, then it, gets, then it gets put out there. But, yeah, I mean, we're, we're really, really excited about the potential of St. Louis in general and especially downtown West. That's awesome. I love your passion for the city. Appreciate your time today. We end each show uh, with what we call a hole-in-one, which would just be your greatest piece of advice that someone can implement either into their life or business today. Yeah, I think being an expert. So focused more on the professional growth and being in demand, become an expert. If you're the expert in whatever it is that you're doing professionally, then you have job security, you can demand higher wages, you can demand a lot of things that other people wouldn't. And that's very important. And so really, I think it's as simple as that. Just really find what you're passionate about professionally and dive in. I don't wake up every day thinking, oh man, I have to go to work. I wake up every day being stressed out, sure, but also being excited about what we're going to hopefully accomplish that day. And every day is like that. So although it's in a stressful period of time right now, I'm excited about what I'm doing. And so I hope that everybody can find what they're excited and passionate about doing professionally and then be an expert in that. Be an expert. I love it. Yeah. Uh, where can people either learn more about you or connect with you or learn more about AHM? Yeah. Um, so you can find our website, ahmre.com. And then our affiliated entities are a part of that as well. I'm also on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks for cool. your time. Yeah. Thank you, Rush. If you're a high quality company interested in reaching the high performing audience of Country Club Conversations, let's see how we can work together. To explore sponsorship opportunities, email advertising at storyboardliving.com. That's advertising at storyboardliving.com. <laughs>